Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. You know that clickbait headline convention, Tap Lines listener? Only 90s kids will remember. Well, today, we're going to be looking back at a 90s moment that barely anyone remembers. A blink-and-you'll-miss-it manifestation of the excitement of craft brewing's first-wave heyday that appeared for just a couple brief years in Los Angeles at the beginning of that decade. It was a brew pub, then still a vanguard concept, with a $6 million brew house imported from West Germany and a high-flying chef with unimpeachable bona fides to front the operation. Beer history buffs and Angelinos of a certain age may know where this is headed, but for the rest of you, I'm talking about a spot called Eureka, and I'm talking about it with the one and only Wolfgang Puck. That's right, listener. Today on Tap Lines, we're joined by Chef himself, he of Spago and Chinois and so many other successful restaurants, the James Beard Lifetime Achiever, for a candid, clear-eyed look at how one of the loudest salvos in elevating the role of craft beer in dining, as Tom Assatelli put it in his 2013 book, The Audacity of Hops, met such a quick and unceremonious demise, and what Chef learned from its collapse. Here's a hint. When the kitchen is clicking, but the brewery business ain't, well, your brew pub might be headed for trouble. But I'll let Chef tell the tale. It's Wolfgang Puck. It's the erstwhile Eureka. It's confronting the brew pub conundrum. And it's all right here right now on Von Pear's Tap Lines. We got a special treat for you today, Tap Lines listeners. We're joined in the Tap Lines virtual studio uh, by a man who needs no introduction. So, uh, you know, why am I even going to give him one? Let's just let him say hello. Wolfgang Puck, welcome to the Tap Lines podcast. Hello. Good to be with you guys. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Wolfgang. Uh, Chef, where are, you, where are you joining us from today? Well, I'm right here in West Hollywood, you know, in Los Angeles, uh, uh, in my office still, because Spago is closed today, Chino is closed. So I do a little uh, office work, go back and look who I forgot to send an email to or a text to and things like that, you know. So You're playing a little catch-up. It's good to be a little bit in the office. Huh? Yeah, a little catch-up. <laughs> Very good. Wow, I had no idea, uh, Chef, but you and I have at least one thing in common, which is occasionally we get a little behind on our emails. So I'm glad I'm glad to know I'm not the only one. Uh, no, I'm, t- I'm not a good guy on the email, so I think I have... Uh... Uh, Lavina and Susan, uh, two very capable people who can do it for me. Well, we're glad to have uh, gotten in touch with them and through them uh, gotten in touch with you because, Chef, you mentioned, uh, you know, Spago in Chinois, um, obviously some of the sort of most recognizable names in American dining. You mentioned that you're in West Hollywood. Um, I think, you know, so many of our listeners know you as the culinary talent that, uh, you've established over decades long career. Um, many of our listeners who are more plugged into the beer industry side of things may not know that Wolfgang Puck had a a brief uh, a brief affair with the craft beer uh, industry. Um, you know, a few decades ago, and that's what we're here to talk about today. We appreciate you uh, you being willing to take a trip down memory lane with us. Yep. Why not, huh? <laughs> So, Why not, man? So yeah. we talk we talk about the uh, the tap lines time machine, uh, and we usually hand it over to our guests uh, to decide 
what year they would like to start the story in. The story, of course, that I'm referring to is uh, is the tale of Eureka, um, your venture into the American craft brewing industry. Chef, in your mind, where does that story start? When, when around, uh, well, when does it start? The story, the story really started in Austria. You know, in Austria, in the old time, uh, there was no refrigerator truck. There was no refrigerator. I remember they had, uh, where they were brewing beer, where I grew up in a little town, they cut their ice from the lakes. You know, they had like, I don't know, three feet uh, deep ice uh, on the lake. They sure. cut it and put it in the cellar and it stayed forever there. So that's how they used to keep the beer cold, you know. Mm. And I think they didn't have a machine to pasteurize it. So it was consumed totally locally there. So it didn't go out in the sun or on trucks somewhere. So for me, in Austria, you see a lot of breweries with a restaurant. And, you know, I thought you know, there's nothing better than having a goulash or a sausage and have a fresh beer on top, you know, uh, and different kinds uh, with, for different flavors, with different alcohol degrees and everything. So that's where it really started. So then I went to France, learned about French cooking, and obviously, in part of France, certain part beer is also big. And then I came to America, worked in some great restaurants, and then I opened Spago, Chinois. And then they were so successful, and I said, I can do anything to, it will be successful. So with a friend of mine who used to run a winery, we decided to do a restaurant brewery. Mm. Where like 70% of the building was the brewery and 30% the restaurant. And so we were supposed to, uh, in our plan, to do a million cases of beer a year, which is, you know, a small brewery in comparison to the large one. It's a craft brewery. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a great restaurant with it. So we started it out, I think it was in 1989, obviously, there were not many local breweries, not many breweries which brewed their own beer and so forth around. You know, I know we in LA, we were probably one of the only ones. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Who, who did that. And, uh, and so when we opened, it was a smash hit. The restaurant was doing amazing. I remember in uh, 89, we did like $5 million a year in business. We actually did more business at Eureka than at Spago. Whoa. So, which was really amazing. I remember we had the, the birthday party for Sean Connery and, you know, <laughs> and he, I think it was his 60th birthday and we, we made sausages. I actually brought a sausage maker over from, from Munich, from Germany to make traditional Weisswurst and Bratwurst and all that stuff too, because I grew up with it too, but Munich was very famous because uh, yeah, yeah. You know, we know the Oktoberfest. And so the restaurant did really amazing. The beer in the restaurant was amazing. It was unfiltered and uh, we had, you know, obviously traditional lager. We had some Pilsner, we had some dark beer, we had some golden beer. So all different, and then we added sometimes different flavors for different occasions, uh, made it stronger than, uh, you know, with more higher in alcohol. Mm -hmm. So, but mainly the beer on top at the brewery and the, the restaurant at the brewery was amazing. And we made food to go with it. So the food was really, obviously, we had this uh, German uh, sausage maker come over 
And then uh, I had different influence for wherever they drink beer. So I said, okay, Mexican food is great with beer. We made some amazing quesadillas, I remember. And then we had obviously some Austrian dishes like goulash and uh, some Asian dishes. So it was a mixture of it, but really good. And we had a great clientele. The restaurant was doing really well. The beer was delicious. But then we also were supposed to sell beer in... uh, to the supermarkets and, uh, you know, yeah, liquor and the stores. And yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And uh, so because we didn't uh, pasteurize the beer, we made it a traditional German way, which they call, you know, the Reinheitsgebot, where uh, you don't add anything, you don't do anything. Of course. Just keep it all natural. And so uh, the beer, because it stayed outside on the trucks and everything, you know, it did not hold up in the bottle. Mm. I remember I went on a cruise. I did some cooking classes on the Crystal uh, uh, Cruise Line. And I bought two pallets of my beer. And uh, I went with my father to the to the bar and said, do you have my beer? Do you have your Rika beer? The guy didn't know anything. And then I told the guy who was running the hotel on the ship. And I said, okay. You know, we brought two pallets of beer, so there's none in the bar. They put them in the bar the next day. I go with my father, and we pour the beer, and I taste it, and I said, this is not right. This no, no. Not <laughs> and, and, then, and it had a very cloudy, weird cloudy color. Yeah. And then I opened another one and another one, and they were all the same. So I said, you know, we cannot serve this beer. It's not good enough, so it's, something is wrong because... It wasn't pasteurized. Mm, mm. So we had this big problem of not pasteurizing the beer to sell it commercially. The restaurant continued to be really successful. And then finally, I think after two and a half years or three years, uh, we had to shut down the business. I actually got another investors, but I couldn't uh, get rid of my partners there. And uh, so then... Uh, uh, I had an Austrian brewery actually coming over and helping me with the beer. But because of the partners, they said, you know, we don't need these guys. Uh, we do it ourselves. And they said, well, we are owners. We are not leaving. So I said, well, then I'm leaving. So then I said, okay, guys, we're going to close the restaurant and you can do it. And naturally, they closed everything down. Yeah, yeah. So sure. it was one, was a big lesson for me, really to do things I can control, you know. And here, the beer, even if it's not complicated, but you have to set it up the right way and do it the right way to have a chance to be successful. And even in the old time, there were not that many microbreweries like the, like the way it's today. But uh, I still think we could have been successful. And one of the main reasons I did it, I thought we could create a brand you know, and which is very valuable too, you know. So uh, at that time they had Anchor Steam and some Adams, but very few breweries actually uh, who bottled their beer, who had a bottling line. And I remember we had everything from Steinecker in Germany, a big brewing equipment manufacturer, and he uh, sent it to us and... uh, uh, we put it on a lease uh, payment, so we didn't pay anything for it. Mm-hmm. But it was an amazing, he's like the Rolls Royce of the brewing equipment. And then I told him, okay, you know, I'm so sorry, we cannot pay the lease. Uh, can you give us a little more time? 
And so he said, okay, I'm coming over to see you. He comes over on a Friday night, goes to Eureka. It was so busy and so noisy. It was like Oktoberfest in L.A. <laughs> and he said, you are, you are, are you screwing me around? Do you look how busy the restaurant is? I said, yes, but, you know, the brewery is different. The restaurant is different than the brewery. Yeah. And so he, he said, no, I'm not going to give you credit uh, any longer. You have to pay. If not, I take the equipment back. So... At the end, he had a hard head and I had a hard head and, uh, you know, we gave him the equipment back and that was the end of Eureka. Sure, sure. So that was what, like Wolfgang, uh, uh, 1993 or so, I want to say, was when Eureka closed? 92, I think 92, so. yeah. yeah, 92. Yeah. So it was only open for a brief time. You said you opened in 89. You had a lot of uh, success right when it opened. The restaurant is full. It's doing more business uh, at one point than Spago was, which is no no yeah. easy feat. I mean, Spago, you know, was uh, in continuous... Was, at yeah. that time, uh, the most famous restaurant right, in America. Maybe. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so there were, there were sort of bright spots of what Eureka could maybe accomplish. Um, yeah. In your... I, I want to back up a little bit because you describe your childhood in Austria. You describe sort of some of the program that you put together with your partner's um, on the beer side of things at Eureka, what were you what were you drinking at this time? What were you drinking? Like, what kind of beers did you grow up with, Wolfgang? Well, I still remember I drank beer in Austria. My grandmother used to have a dark beer from the local brewery, mm. and uh, uh, even that, like we on Sunday when my parents wasn't there, my uh, grandmother used to drink a glass of the beer, and she used to give us kids, my sister and myself, a little beer, and we put <laughs> a little more sugar in it and drank the beer yeah, so yeah. that way we can fall asleep. Uh, and we had the regular lager beer. That's what I remember was the most popular one, what everybody was drinking. But I didn't like the lager beer as a kid because it was bitter and everything. They had a lot of hop in it, so it's... Uh, but, you know, where I grew up, we didn't drink wine. Mainly it was beer, mm. you know, with food. Whenever we had lunch or dinner, was always with the beer, not with a glass of wine. People drank wine when they went to a bar or went out, uh, but not with food. It was interesting. Everybody drank beer. Yeah, yeah. What was what were people drinking in the in the late eighties, early nineties in Los Angeles? What was the beer scene like? Well, in the eighties, the big news were California wines. Mm. So that yep. was really the main thing. All of a sudden, California wines came on and were really famous, and everybody. Uh, sort of about uh, Cabernet and Chardonnay. That was the big thing, you know, in restaurants for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I think it was so much so that, uh, like when I built Chinois, our restaurant in Santa Monica, where Asian food actually would be good with beer too. But I built a big wine rack behind the bar. I said, oh, we're going to sell California wines, you know, mm -hmm. with our Asian food. And had the bar... Uh, the bottles for vodka and tequila, whatever, on the side, so you barely saw them. So you only saw the wine rack because I wanted to sell wine because that was the it thing at that time, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Everybody talked about it. Everybody talked about the California wines, and obviously Italian or French was too, but California wine really was the beginning. Yeah. 
And you were in California, obviously, so everyone's yeah, even that totally. much more excited about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about, so what was the beer scene like? Like, you, you mentioned that there were some craft breweries. I mean, obviously, you had Anchor that had been going for a long time in San Francisco. Yeah. At the, In 89, uh, Sierra Nevada up in Chico, California opens. Ken Grossman, uh, you know, co-found Sierra Nevada. So that's just starting to come on. Who were the other players that you remember in the brewing industry at that time? You know, I, I really remember Jim Cook really well because he started uh, Sam sure. Adams a little sure. bit before, and he started to grow it, and he also started to market it. So he was really the first one who started small, you know, the Boston Beer Company, and then he gradually expanded it, and it became a brand where people like it. People seem to like it, you know. At that time, he was probably nationally one of the only ones uh, who did it. Now, you know, every city has little breweries, brew pubs, they make their beer, some in smaller quantities, some just for the restaurant, some uh, where they have a little bit uh, a bigger facility. So yep, yep. I, I think, I think uh, to me, one thing was I thought we had really the best brewery restaurant, for sure. Mm. You know, it was not about uh, uh, making just cheap beer food, like just sausages or whatever. Right. We made our own bread. We made everything ourselves. We had the charcuterie plate where we made our own copper. We made our own salamis. We made our own... Sounds uh, amazing. sec, like in Lyon. Mm -hmm. And so... We really were way ahead. We had great pastries, and I think my ex-wife did a beautiful restaurant, too. She looked like a, a factory in a modern way, you know. So cool. I think everything was really well. And we were not in a neighborhood where there were so many people. We were in, in an industrial park. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't have any foot traffic there. You really had to go there on uh, purpose, you know. But because people like uh, Mike Ovitz from CIA, he brought his customers there. I remember we had uh, Barbara Walters there, Julia Roberts there. So many of the people used to like it because they used to love the Austrian dishes and uh, the beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh it's a good point, right? Like the, the idea of a, of a brewery restaurant in an industrial park maybe in 1989 was not as familiar, although, as you know, you know, three decades later, the idea of breweries opening tap rooms with food in post-industrial, you know, parts of, of a city, you know, a warehouse district or a, an old fa yeah. factory district is much more familiar. I mean, you guys were in, in that way, and it sounds like maybe in other ways, too. We're ahead of the curve there, Wolfgang. <laughs> I think so, too. I think uh, it was ahead of the curve, but... Uh... I think the business, since I was already a retailer too, you know, mm -hmm. I had restaurants mm -hmm. where we sell uh, alcohol. So I had to go to Sacramento uh, and change, help them change the law so that way I can be an owner too. So I owned like the only 10% of it. That was one of the factors. I said, I only can own, own 10% and I put all this work in it. Uh, it's crazy. You yeah, know? yeah. That's yeah. one of the reasons I said, you know, unless I get somebody who can really operate the brewery the way it should be, then if not, why work so hard and for nothing? Yeah, totally. 
Chef, you mentioned sort of that at that era, you know, in the late 80s, uh, California wines are sort of the big story and everyone, there's a ton of excitement about it. You mentioned organizing Chinois around, you know, California wines. This was also a moment, maybe a little bit before, but beer is about to come on very strong, right? We see the first craft beer surge in the late 80s, or the late 90s, excuse me. So, you know, another three, four years after uh, Eureka closed, and you would see this big first wave craft beer boom. I'm curious to get your take as someone who lived through that and worked through that and developed these different, you know, restaurant concepts, one of which was around, you know, the, the brewing industry. What was the difference that you were seeing selling wine against a food program as opposed to selling beer against a food program? I mean, it seems like significant. Well, for us in the restaurant business, the upscale restaurant businesses, yeah. we want to sell wine. Why? Because it costs much more money. You sure, know? sure. Even at that time, you know, a beer was $5, a bottle of wine or a glass of wine was uh, uh, $8. Yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah. And uh, I think the costs were really good for us for the beer. You know, if we sold it in a restaurant, I mean, we made really good money with the beer. So it was the restaurant was very profitable and everything. But we were supposed to produce a million cases a year. And I think uh, we produced like 35,000 or something like that. Wow. You know, so that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was not a good thing. Yeah. So, you know, we live and learn. Uh, I think I should, I should not have created one company, the brewery and the restaurant, were all once. Mm. If it would have been separated, maybe we would have had a chance. But I think it's very difficult to go into a business where you only can own 10% and you have to work so hard to get it going. So that's one of the reasons I stopped it. Sure, sure. That makes sense. And the price point is also, you know, sort of, th that definitely makes sense, right? Like there, there had to have been a lot of, I'm curious, like when you remember walking the floor or speaking with customers, how much was the price resistance a factor? I mean, you guys were making beautiful beer. It was un, it was unpasteurized. Like this was a product that was not really available to the American drinker in many places. So on one yeah. hand, that's a premium, right? But on the other, American drinker just isn't going to pay more than five dollars, six dollars for for a pint of beer. I, I'm curious how much you sort of encountered that that resistance at uh, at Eureka. I, I don't think there was a resistance at no. all, you know, because we served them in nice glasses. So it was really, I think, a, a, a elegant way to drink beer to go mm. with the food. So I think there was no resistance at all because uh, you can get a really good beer, you know, for a reasonable price, you know, in comparison to wine sure. or liquor. Sure. So I think it, it was very popular and people drink beer, you know, beer is a very popular thing all over the place. You know, if it's uh, rich people, poor people, they all like beer. And uh, I still drink it, even with my uh, still bitter taste in my mouth. I think I still have hops in between my teeth. Uh, <laughs> I after that I stopped drinking beer. I said, no, I'm come on, really? Beer. Oh, totally. <laughs> oh no, you gave up beer because of how Eureka went? Oh no. Yeah, well, it's a good reason. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. But do you do you remember? Uh, so in the in the aftermath of that, like I said, the the craft beer industry would start to 
rise and and have what we now know as its sort of first boom, right, in the late 90s. Yeah. Uh, did you ever think about revisiting the Eureka concept? I thought many times to revisit it, uh, but I said I have to find the right people to do it. Mm, you know, mm. I don't want to have to worry about the beer, about who is brewing, uh, brewing it, how the bottling line is working, did they pasteurize it or not, and everything. I think you need really somebody and then have somebody to market it also, you mm. know. I think one of the problem was, like especially in LA, the restaurants, the better restaurants, they bought because they were my friends maybe, they bought a few beer, a few cases, but they never really sold it, you know, I heard one of the guys uh, from a very well-known restaurant at that time said, oh, you know what? We're not going to make Wolfgang any richer. Fuck him, you know? That's it. <laughs> so he wasn't... Uh, even, he was, yeah, yeah. He, even he was a friend of mine, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, but he was... You know, some people are jealous when people are successful instead of doing the opposite, you know? Yeah, yeah. I love when friends are successful, you know? It's, it's a good thing. <laughs> so I think I had a I had a big resistance there from other restaurant people. <laughs> I never thought of that, but yeah, sure. I mean, gosh, they they must have been, as you say. I mean, you were you were at that moment the hottest, you know, most well recognized chef in the country. Man, of course, there's going to be some jealousy. Yeah. So <laughs> so it, it was hard for me to go and market it, and you know people always bought a little bit, and then that was it. Well, plus you were busy; you had two other restaurants going on. You had the, yeah, totally. the other parts yeah, of the business. Had, yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. had Chinois, we yeah. had Spago. Yep. I did consulting for the mansion in in Dallas and the Remington in Houston. Mm. I did consulting for an airline. We had Spago in Tokyo. So it wasn't like that I was out of a job, you know. It was, <laughs> right, uh, right. But I thought the whole, if you look, if I look back at my history, which were the most recognizable and the most unique concepts, obviously it started with Spago, with the open kitchen in a fine dining restaurant that didn't exist before. Mm. Then Chinois, Chinois was the first fusion restaurant mm -hmm. because I didn't learn how to cook Chinese food or Vietnamese food or whatever. I loved the taste of it and I imagined how to do it. How would I do it with my techniques, you know, mm -hmm. instead of mm -hmm. the Asian techniques. And then the third one was Eureka. Eureka is a concept, the whole package was amazing. You know, when you walked in, you saw the three big uh, brewing kettles in front of you. And when you sat at the bar, you could see the beer being cooked and everything. I mean, it was really, uh, to me, an amazing experience, really. You know, it wasn't just like that you, uh, that you drank a beer, but you see it actually being made. And you could go in the back to the tanks where the fermentation tanks were and everything. So it was an exciting uh, an exciting project. I still feel bad that it didn't work out. And I remember I had all these famous investors from Baba Streisand to Jack Nicholson and so forth. And Baba Streisand 10 years later said, oh, the only restaurant I invested in uh, failed. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's, uh, well, sorry, Barbara, if you're listening. I'm sure uh, this is not how Wolfgang wanted it to work out either, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I lost the I lost the most. So oh, I told boy. you, I I remember she used to 
uh, make at that time millions a, a night already. I remember in 93 when we opened the MGM, so that was just a year after we closed. Yeah. Uh, she did a show in Vegas two nights at the MGM. Uh, she got paid $20 million. Holy million smokes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, then, Barbara, you're doing okay. You know, Eureka. She's doing okay. Yeah, she she's doing little, okay. A little, <laughs> a little tax write-off was okay. That's right. That's right. Uh, Chef, I want, if we could, to think about, um, you know, you, you mentioned the idea you guys were aiming for at one point a million cases annually that you were hoping to sell uh, in the off-premise yeah. and, and to fellow retail, uh, and to fellow uh, restaurant operators to sell in the on-premise. That's a totally different business than the one that you were, you know, at that point had the most experience with. Like selling pa- yeah. packaged beer is is a challenge even today in 2024. Um, and, yeah. and certainly back then when the the marketplace was mostly dominated by the big three, by Miller, Coors, yeah. and, and, and Bud, um, you yeah. know, the, the American consumer maybe wasn't as ready to uh, uh, go out and buy smaller breweries that they weren't familiar with, smaller brands. Talk a little bit about that, what you were seeing in the off-premise. I mean, obviously it didn't work out the way you'd hoped, but what was was your thesis going into that brand-building part of the business? Well, I I really thought that the idea of doing it and building a brand would be really a great thing, you know, that Mm. we can build it, we... The restaurant made money. The restaurant had great customers and everything. So we got name recognition just from the restaurant, mm-hmm. you know. So people knew and they said, we go to Eureka. We had the beer there too. And so it was a great way to start it out without having a marketing budget because the restaurant was really the marketeer for the beer. That's the way I saw it at that time. I said, we always, when we open a restaurant, like I remember we opened a Postrio in San Francisco around that time too, and it became a huge success in San Francisco. So I was thinking, you know, I cannot uh, do anything wrong. Everything going to be perfect. You know, she knew I was well, Spago was well, Postrio did well. So I said, you know, life is good. So I forgot though that in business, it's better to do something you do uh, and you know well that something you can control. Mm, you know? So mm. that's, I learned. For me, I remember uh, when Ronald Reagan came to the restaurant, I gave him a Eureka hat, and he said, oh, you went to Eureka. I went to Eureka too. I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, I went to Eureka College in Illinois. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> I still remember. But he walked around with my Eureka hat. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Do you remember any conversations with distributors from back then? Like, were they excited to carry the product? Like, what, what's your recollection? You know, at the beginning, everybody was really excited yeah. about it. Yeah. And uh, people really wanted it and said, oh, finally, something new in our industry. And they started to hear about the restaurant and everything. So at the beginning, it was really good. But then the butts got out that the beer doesn't hold up. Mm, so we, mm. we had to buy back the beer and everything. It became a, a, a difficult thing. And, you know, you don't get that many chances when uh, totally. <coughs> you try to launch something. So you better have it right, uh, have your ducks in a, in a row and have everything ready. And, you know, I didn't know... At that time, I didn't even think about it, that the beer will spoil if it's not pasteurized, Mm. if it's not 
kept refrigerated at all the time if the pasteurizing or the filling room was not uh, uh, completely bacteria-free and everything. So it's a lot of science going in it. If you want to do it that way, it's possible do it without pasteurizing, but also it's very difficult. And you got to like, sell it quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It doesn't hold up long, and if you let it sit outside and or in trucks which are not refrigerated, so then it becomes a problem. Yeah. So that's what I learned. I saw the positive side of it. I think uh, uh, I didn't really check in and said, what can go wrong? Yeah. So my lawyer didn't tell me. Now my business lawyer always tells me, whenever I do a restaurant, he always tells me not to do it because so many things can go wrong. I said, okay, I'm going to check them off and see if there's enough positive side. Yeah, yeah. But not that, not this time around. And Eureka, yeah, yeah. What uh did uh, something that became more common, you know, a decade later or so, decade and a half later, um, was the big strategic conglomerates like Anheuser Busch, like uh, Molson Coors, would acquire you know breweries. This was happening in the late aughts and the early you know in the early 2010s. That became a much yeah. more common dynamic in the market. But back in 91, 92, when maybe you were, you know, starting to have conversations about the future of Eureka, did any, did any of the big companies, the big breweries try to contact you to get a hold of, I mean, you'd built at least yeah, part, yeah, a partially I, I successful the, business. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I dealt with an Austrian beer company, Otto Kringer, out of Vienna. Okay. They have, their, and they're very well respected, very well known in, uh, in Austria, and they owned a few other breweries too. And so I contacted them because a friend of mine was on the board. He was like the chairman of the board uh, of the company. You know, he wasn't the CEO. He didn't run it, but uh, he was the chairman. And uh, so they came over and everything, and I was actually excited. They tried to buy uh, the brand, not for much money, but I told them it would be a very good reason if they can run the beer and do it properly, that way for them to start out Otakringer beer in, uh, in uh, LA or in New York or in Chicago would be very expensive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, here with me, we were already very well known. You know, they have a good base already and uh, they could support it at the beginning. And I thought it would be a profitable business. So, yeah. But then we, I could not get rid of my partners. I had three partners mm. in there, three general partners, and uh, that that was it. Yeah, you know? So yeah. I said, okay. And I remember I had my friend, uh, John Paul de Joria, who uh, at that time owned Paul Mitchell, and uh, before he started uh, uh, Patron Tequila, mm -hmm. he, was, he was interested in investing more money in it. But then I said, if I cannot change the brewery, I won't do it, mm -hmm. you know, and so then uh, my partners, they duck their heads in and I said, okay, I'm not going to do it then. Yeah, yeah. And then JP didn't uh, put money in it, so we had to close it down. Yeah, yeah. And you, just to, uh, you, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you were only about 10% of Eureka. Exactly. Yeah, so, I only could own yeah. 10%. And to get that, I had to change the law, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Go up to Sacramento. If not... <laughs> Yeah, I had to go to and Willie Brown and all these guys up there yeah, helping yeah. to get it through. But it had a limit on it and everything. So if not, if there wouldn't be the tight house law, you know, the brewery would own uh, every poop up uh, in the world, you know. Right, right. They all would be uh, Bush or Anheuser right. or Miller. Heineken, pops, yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. Right. 
Yeah, that's a that's a unique quirk of the uh, of the American system, right? And every state yeah. has a different way of administering it. But the three tier yeah. system is uh, is one that I think a lot of our listeners get very frustrated by because beer, you know, brewers in the trade, um, you know, they struggle to sort of find a route to market that uh, that makes sense for their business, that the margin is going to be worth doing, and um, you know, the three tier system poses a lot of obstacles to that then as now, um, Chef. Well, you, Oh, sorry, God. It's a good. It's a good thing that it is like that because if not, a lot of small entrepreneurs they would never be able to get off the ground. Yeah, you know? it's true. So I think I think it's a good thing. If not, you know, I think it would be really big companies would even run more than what they do already. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's already yeah. without that it would be impossible. There would be ten companies in America and then the rest we would work for them. Yeah. No, you're right about that. I think uh, pros and pros and cons to the system and certainly uh something that we've talked about at length uh on the podcast and I've talked about in my reporting in the past. Chef, I wanna uh uh sort of um look, you know, sort of back up to present day. You're probably the most culinarily accomplished guest that we've ever had here on Taplines, and frankly, uh, the most uh, accomplished that we ever might have here on Taplines. You have the benefit of seeing um, so much more of the American culinary landscape than I ever will, um, and then a lot of our listeners ever will. One of the things that I've reported on in the past, and that the American beer industry has been interested, you know, to sort of try to crack the code on, um, is the idea of like beer as a culinary product, right? Like it's an agricultural product. It's a culinary product. Hey, we can make fine beer just like we can make fine wine. It can be paired with food. Uh, you know, a decade ago, the craft brewing industry was insistent about this idea of, of beer as a, as a culinary product and, and something that could really stand up not only in terms of flavor, but in terms of price point with something like wine. I'm curious, having seen as much as you've seen of the way the American hospitality industry has evolved and, and you know, the way the different beverage alcohol categories interact with it and factor into it, do you see a place for, you know, uh, beer in the way that it fit in at Eureka? Do you see that in the marketplace these days in 2024? Well, you know, it's 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 an interesting thing because you know there are people who drink beer with dinner. Mm. It's just not in the majority. Mm -hmm. Is a way they're gonna try to sell a bottle of beer instead of a half bottle of wine? No, a half bottle of wine these days cost uh, you know maybe eighty dollars if it's a good wine, and then uh, if you have a bottle of beer, gonna cost fifteen dollars mm -hmm. or twelve dollars. So, and then the tip, how much it's going to be, $2 or $3, or it's going to be $15, right. you know. So that's a big difference. Sure. Uh, and the intention of it. Now, certain dishes go better with beer, that's for sure. Like for me, drinking uh, wine with goulash, I wouldn't even think about it. <laughs> when, I, when I go skiing, I have a ham, I, I finish skiing, and I sit down at the bar, and I have a... Uh, a, a ham sandwich or with some fresh horseradish. It reminds me of Austria. It reminds me of beer. So I have a beer, but I always put it in a wine glass. I like to drink it out of a nice glass. <laughs> I don't like heavy glasses yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, so. No imperial I think that's yeah, part, yeah, yeah. That's, part, that's part of it, you know. How do we going to sell it, the beer, you know? Because if you put it in a big pint, it gets warm. 
And you know, I know there is the English who love it warm. Like I don't like to <laughs> right. go to a pub in London because the beer is flat and warm. So it's, it starts warm it and it way. gets flatter and warmer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's their preference. That's not I my think, preference. I think I think it might be interesting to see it about the packaging. Maybe to put it in a bigger bottle, like in a seven fifty mm, or a liter mm. or something like that, and then keep it in an ice bucket. And then serve it in a nice glass. I think people would like it. It's not sometimes, it's how you present it, you know. Uh, and I think uh, often the presentation for serving beer in more upscale restaurants, it's just the same way as they would do it in a cheap place somewhere, you know, in these big beer glasses. I like it out of a finer glass and I like it with a stem glass and uh, why not, you know, and then it will go okay with the thing. Yeah. And then I think also the breweries can add different kind of flavors to go with different kind of uh, uh, food. I actually thought at Chinois, I tried to acquire the property next door, but then they didn't sell it. My reason was, I said, I'm going to build a small brewery there and make it really different, you know, get really different beers with different uh, flavors added to it and everything for different occasions or for different dishes to have a bearing and say, okay, you know, this is a, a, uh, a lager beer, but we added a little bit of ginger to it or a little bit of jasmine to sure, it sure. and give it a different, uh, a different taste, you know, not to overpower the dish, but to have interesting flavors. I mean, that sounds like a really fun project. Were you going to try to do that after Eureka closed? Yeah. So you still wanted another another shot at another I, brewery. I, 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 want, I want revenge. <laughs> I want revenge, you know. <laughs> I need a rematch. I like that. <laughs> maybe one day. I like that. Yeah. Well, but, you know, the beers that you're describing, ginger, lavender, maybe a little bit of rosemary, whatever, working with these culinary flavors, it sounds really interesting to me as a drinker, but, uh, you know, from the Austrian perspective, from the German perspective, that those are violations of the Reinheitsgebot. That's, uh, that's, yeah, not, the, that's uh, not pure beer at all. You know, when I opened Chinois, I had so many Chinese restaurateurs send me notes, nasty notes. How dare you oh, cook geez. Chinese food? Sure. You're not Chinese. You shouldn't be allowed to do that. This is a misrepresentation of our culture. And you name it what they send uh, these words. And, you know, at the end, I think we did what we did and they do what they did. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe we c could create a whole new cat category about it, yeah, you know, yeah. about specialty beers. And I'm sure some people wouldn't like it and some people said, wow, this is really interesting, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, who would have ever thought that Red Bull going to be so big, you know? Who gonna drink this sweet lemonade with uh, <laughs> right. terrible flavor? Yeah, yeah. People put it in their vodka. The kids put it in their vodka. Stay up all night and drink <laughs> it. I mean, it's. I tasted it. And I said, why would anybody buy that? Yet? Yeah, uh, it's owned by a friend of mine, you know. But uh, he passed away a year and a half ago. Uh, but you know. Never underestimate the palate of the American people. I'm so glad you said that, Wolfgang, because I, that was my next question was, you've also watched the American palate grow and change since you, you know, opened your opened and closed Eureka, since you've been in business. Where is the American palate these days as opposed to where it was when you began? Has there been any progress in your view? <laughs> well, I think in the old time, the taste was very close-minded. Uh. 
people didn't even accept it. American uh, chefs were not really uh, were not really doing anything. Mm, you know, mm. very few. And they had to come from Italy, from France, or from China or Japan, you name it, but not from uh, the U.S. So that has changed. But I think one of the things what I saw in the 80s, for example, when we started Spago in 1982, the traditional restaurants, you know, New York, Washington, maybe Boston a little bit, they had this traditional restaurant they had to uh, do a certain way, you know, like I remember in the old time when uh, you walked into La Grenouille or La, uh, all these French restaurants, they had a little table outside with appetizers, with uh, desserts and everything. There was a certain style. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I started, I started Spago in LA and I think it worked in LA better because we didn't have that tradition. So we were more open-minded and people were excited about having something new, something they never saw really. Because at that time, you know, having a pizza with smoked salmon, even today, you know, people know about it or yeah. serving, serving raw tuna in a, in a tablecloth restaurant, not in a Japanese, that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So I started to mix things together already then in 82 and I think people were receptive to it. People filled up the restaurant every day. We were more successful than any other restaurant, and we are still successful today mm -hmm. by trying to really figure out how we're going to combine innovation and tradition. You know, tradition is great, but also innovation is important mm -hmm. because if you stay still all the time, it's boring. Yeah, yeah. Those are wise words, Chef. Uh, yeah. We're, we're, you know, in the back half of the episode here, and I wanted to, you know, we've reflected on how Eureka did, uh, you know, obviously it didn't work out the way you wanted to, but you've been so candid about, you know, sort of the struggles it had. The, the craft beer industry in the United States these days is also having struggles. Growth is not happening in the same way that it, it had over the course of the past, you know, decade and a half or so. B yeah. Brewers are selling right around the same amount of beer or maybe even a little bit less than they have been over the course of the past, uh, over the course of the past few years, right? So you're seeing a mature industry, um, struggle with, the idea of tradition versus innovation, as you mentioned. And I'm curious again, like, uh, I don't mean to, to say that you have all the answers, but you have more experience than I think, uh, certainly than I do, but also most of our listeners and most craft brewers, uh, have, have not been in the business of selling American, you know, uh, consumers, uh, the food and drink that's going to excite them and that's going to seem new and yeah. fresh to them. What would what's your perspective or, or what would your recommendations be to industries that are maturing and that are like trying to figure out how to do innovative new things while also respecting their tradition? You've done it a bunch of times before. What how do you how do you approach a problem like that? Well, both of them can live together. Mm. You know, you can have a good lager beer with your goulash, but you can also like we have an Asian restaurant, uh have a, a lager beer with different flavors to it, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, when I saw the first time uh, uh, Corona, they put a lime on top of the beer sure, and then sure. some put it in there. I said, this is terrible. Why do you want to have a lime with the beer? <laughs> Yet it became uh, this amazing brand, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I think 
why not make beer with different flavors in it? Because people are accepting it, you know, with different fruits or the things like that to add to it. I think it's certainly feasible, but you have to give people a reason why to try it, mm. you know. Now we are not so stuck on the past as much. We are ready for innovation. People are ready to try new things. People love new restaurants. So, and I'm sure they will love new kinds of beer with different uh, flavors. So I think, and then if you give them a reason to get the right food to match it with, you know, uh, I think it will be a good thing. I'm not saying I'm out of the beer business yet. I'm still young, so one day I'm going to go back into it and you will hear from me. Well, listen, man, if you're ever looking for a silent partner, I'll shut up. I don't have any money, but I'll be your silent partner. How about that, Wolfgang? And I'll uh, okay, I'll let you do what totally. you need to do. I'll clean up uh, I'll clean up around the fermenters. I'll uh, I'll 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 be the the janitor. How about that? Uh, okay, okay, you keep everything clean. <laughs> you It's very important. Supervised there. Very important. <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> uh, okay, listeners, you heard it here first. Uh, Wolfgang Puck, chef, is not fully out of the beer business. Clearly, chef, over the course of our conversation, I've gotten this sense that you you still would like another redo, maybe another crack at the yep. beer industry. So I'm glad to hear yep. that this is not uh, this is not the end for the beer uh, your beer aspirations. Yeah. No, if I would be a fighter, I would have signed for a rematch for sure, you know? <laughs> so I think this is, I need redemption. <laughs> there we go. Okay, Wolfgang Puck, thank you so much for joining us here on Taplines. Uh, it's been a pleasure going down memory lane with you. Obviously, Eureka, uh, an important turning point for the American craft brewing industry, even though it didn't uh, didn't shake out the way you had hoped. Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Wolfgang. And, and thank you. Thank you. Uh, right. Thank you for bringing me on as your silent partner in this uh, okay. this new brewery <laughs> in this new brewery project. <laughs> okay. Cheers. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you, listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.